So what are the options? Well, unfortunately, not a great deal. <laughs> so um, despite... lying, lying down flat seems to work. Yeah, so so despite, you know, there's 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 an awful lot has been written about postural puncture headache and it's a really, really difficult thing to study. Um. Welcome to episode forty six of the Ups and Gyne Quick Care Podcast. Hi everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Um, uh, I'm joined again by Dr. Matt Rutledge for this part two of our episode um, on the management of dural puncture and dural puncture headache. And so um, thanks again, Matt. Yeah, thanks, Roger. Um, so just to recap, last week we did a bit of a talk about or discussion around managing um, a patient when you have an accidental dural puncture and, uh, and or some ways of trying to avoid them in the first place. Uh, and this week we're going to talk about managing or uh, assessing a patient who has a headache and then managing someone who you think has a postural puncture headache. Um, so similar to last week, I thought I'd start off with like a bit of a hypothetical scenario, which I'm sure will be very familiar to a lot of people. So you're called to the ward by a midwife to review a patient who um, had a vaginal delivery the day before um, and she did have an epidural for pain relief during her delivery. Now she's developed quite a bad headache and uh, the midwife is concerned that maybe she's got a postural puncture headache and she wants you to come and review them. Um, so sounds familiar again. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so I thought we'd uh, just go over. So what are the features of postural puncture headache and uh, what's the sort of main differential diagnoses and um, other things you've got to keep in mind because not everyone has a dural puncture headache. Yeah, I think that's really important. Never never jump to conclusions in our job. Uh, I guess the um, one of the key features of a postural puncture headache is the postural nature of the headache. It's uh, worse when erect and gets better lying down. Yep. Um, that's probably one of the, the main characteristics. Uh, and this headache's also associated with neck stiffness, a very common um, coexisting feature, and also cranial nerve palsies as well, most, most commonly the sixth nerve. Yep, so what does that give them, double vision or...? Uh, yeah. Yep. Um, okay. And uh, also associated with um, photophobia, sometimes nausea and vomiting, just generally feeling a bit rubbish. Uh, yep. But the main characteristic uh, which really marks this out is the postural nature of the headache. Okay. Uh, so what are the differential diagnoses? I, I sort of split them into serious things and uh, more common things. Yeah, well, starting with the more common things, um, having babies is associated with with headaches, um, so simple headaches. And then we've got things like migraines. um, And then we've got more, uh, well, also thinking of the obstetric group of patients we're dealing with, there's a very important complication, preeclampsia, which may present with a headache. Um, And then we've got infective complications, meningitis, encephalitis. We've got space-occupying lesions. Um, we've got uh, bleeds in the head um, and what's also been you know can happen is you can have a dural puncture and you can also have something else as well so yeah. so always 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 think of other causes of headache don't always presume that because something happened this headache is related to that sexual sinus thrombosis as well they also cause, yeah, that's um, right. cause a headache I think I've probably covered most of them yeah so basically um, you know just don't, don't forget the other serious causes um, and especially if things aren't progressing how you'd expect, mm. then um, you need to think about um, uh, imaging 
all sorts of stuff, but I'm sure we're going to get onto that in a second. Yeah. So, in fact, we are going to get on that now. So what's a safe approach to obtaining a history and examination when you're assessing this headache? We've sort of talked about the features you look for, but what do you, uh, how do you approach it? Yeah, so I, I'd like to sort of pin down what actually happened at the time of the, uh, the epidural or the, yeah, the spinal. Yeah, that's key. I think it? that's really important, as well as then looking at, obviously, at the patient features. Now, it's interesting to know that, you know, if we're thinking about maybe, uh, so thinking about postural punch headache, maybe due to a accidental breach of the dura with a yep. bigger gauge needle, um, which may be the two-e needle, or it may be the introducer needle of your spinal needle, yep. or it may be even due to your infiltration needle. That's yeah, all that's these right. things have been done, and, and all these needles have traumatic uh, tips, and they, they tend to cause headaches in this patient population. Um, so looking at exactly what happened, was this a clear breach of the dura with CSF pouring out of the 2E needle? Or was this perhaps a difficult epidural with multiple attempts? Or was this a spinal block that required multiple insertions to, to get there? I think all these factors are, are important. And certainly some of the work that's been done by um, our colleague Mike Paik, um, about up to about a quarter of postural puncture headaches um, weren't recognised as accidental dural punctures at the yes. time. So that's quite a large group of patients who may present with a dural puncture headache um, when one was not noticed at the time of the epidural. Um, and what sort of examination do you do? Do you do much yeah. in the way of examination or...? Yeah, so um, full history and just just really sort of teasing out the characteristics um, of the headache, so looking for those features we mentioned earlier. Um, I do get them to sit up, and I try to see personally if there is that difference uh, yep. rather than just being told that it's different. So um, it's a bit unpleasant, but I do get them to um, have a conversation with me sitting up and seeing if I can notice that uh, yep. change in severity. Uh, and I do also do a um, an abdominal squeeze. Um, now, this what we're doing here. I'm sure you've done this before, Roger. Basically, give them a bear hug, um, and you're raising the intra-abdominal pressure, and that then raises the intracranial pressure, and the headache will often go away. Yep. Now, whether that's entirely diagnostic of a postural punch headache is a bit unclear, but it's pretty reassuring when they've got a good going headache when they're sitting up. And you give them a squeeze around the middle, raise their intracranial pressure, and the headache goes away completely. It's, yeah. It seems pretty reassuring to me. Um, unfortunately, it comes back. They, they, they often think you're fantastic and that you're <laughs> going to stay there all day uh, so, <laughs> around the yeah. middle. But. but unfortunately, the leak continues, yeah. Okay. Um, and obviously, and if, you, if they, on history, give you um, describe any sort of focal neurology, then you yeah, do a proper you want neurological to examination that, yeah. to document all that. And also look at the back as well, you know, just yeah. make sure um, yep. there isn't... Uh, there have been cases of um, fistulas and, and clear fluid leaking out of the back and you need to examine where the um, epidural or spinal was placed. Yep, and I also have a glance at the, um, the observation chart to look for things like fever or yeah, tachycardia useful, and, um, yeah. and that sort of thing, because obviously one of the serious things we're going to pick up is um, you know, headache uh, caused by an infection of some sort. And often um, almost before you even start going into the details, just looking at the room itself. Often yeah. The lights are out, the curtains are drawn, yep. the head's on the pillow, something of flannels over the eyes. You, you, you've almost got the diagnosis. That's right, yeah. You can certainly assess the severity. If they're up and walking around, then um, that's, you know, because a lot of the treatment options are based on function and mm. severity, aren't they? So, so how, how functional they can be. 
Um, so this, let's just uh, assume that it is an obvious postural puncture headache, maybe even that they had a known dural puncture uh, during, during the mm. epidural insertion, so it makes it easier. Um, in someone who's had a known dural puncture and has now developed a headache, you know, how do you explain it to them or frame it to them? Uh, and what are the sort of treatment options that you explain to them and the efficacy of those treatment options? So we need to discuss the, the possible causes. We've, we've thought of our differential diagnosis. Hopefully we've excluded um, other concerning uh, causes of the headache uh, in terms of time frame, um, if the headache is now developing. And obviously there's, there's often a delay between the actual dural puncture and the headache from say, yep. 24 to 48 hours or longer. Um, we need to reassure them that things will improve um, and we need to provide them with some... Uh, guidance on what we can do in the meantime. Yep. So what are the options? Well, unfortunately, not a great deal. <laughs> so <laughs> um, despite... lying down flat seems to work. Yeah, uh, so, so despite, you know, there's, there's, there's an awful lot has been written about postural puncture headache, and it's a really, really difficult thing to study. Uh, yeah. Because, um, well, for two reasons. One, the way it presents, it presents um, out of hours often, so enrolling people into studies is difficult. And if we're looking at a, an intervention, say, does drug A work, given that postural puncture headache tends to settle on its own, unless you're directly comparing drug A in a randomised control way. Yeah, that's right. Giving drug A and seeing the headache go away, if you're not doing that, doesn't necessarily mean that's right. drug cause A causes it to go. Well. Yeah, so, so the literature is sort of peppered with um, certain interventions are useful for postural puncture headache. Um, but unless they're properly investigated in well-conducted randomised controlled trials, which are really hard to do in this patient population, it's quite hard to say they're beneficial. So yeah. a myriad of things have been um, described over the years, but when you actually look at the evidence for their benefit, there is questionable evidence <laughs> for most of them, sadly. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know how you explain it, but I usually say to them there's, there's two broad categories of treatment. One is wait for the leak yeah. to stop. Uh, so, you know, just conservative treatment and eventually it will, they will all stop. Um, or two, you know, they're doing a blood patch. Uh, and then if they do choose to sort of wait and see what happens there, you, you can try, there's a whole heap of things you can try yeah. to try and help them in the interim, but they're all sort of based on observational um, sort of anecdotal case uh, reports and, or, you know, expert level opinion. Yeah, I, th I think like that's we correct. We can go. We can sort of run through some. Yeah, of those. we can run through those. I mean, the first thing. I mean, you know, if you if you if you if you've got a postural headache, you don't really want to get out of bed, and therefore yeah, there's right. a a, a, um, a temptation to say stay in, stay in bed, but staying in bed won't necessarily make your headache get any better faster. No, it just makes you feel better. At the makes time. you feel better. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that is important. You know, um, I guess that if you've got someone who can look after your kids for the next three or four days, and you can. Um, cope by lying down then you might be able to get through it yeah uh, fluids um, again intravenous fluids um, and maintaining hydration uh, not a m no no real evidence of benefit um, as opposed to just making sure they're not dehydrated so yeah so oral fluids but not pushing it necessarily and they don't need intravenous fluids yeah that's right and I think you've got to be careful when you give someone advice if they've got if they're really distressed by a headache and you tell them to drink lots um, that could cause more trouble than it's worth. Yeah, and, um, yeah. So I have had patients um, who've, not, not with dural puncture headaches, but who have drunk like five litres of water in mm. six hours and got hyponatremia. And, um, so there's, considering there's no evidence that drinking a lot of water is going to make your headache go yeah. away, don't sort of give them uh, well-meaning, but um, mm. uh, 
inadvertently um, bad advice. Um, so things like caffeine as well, you know, people have talked about over the years, but they can cause insomnia and agitation if they take big doses. That's right, and if you're breastfeeding um, as well, it, it can cross into breast milk and then you have yeah. a, an irritable baby as well. And traditional, just traditional analgesics, you know, things like um, non-steroidals or opioids, oxycodone, et cetera, you know, they don't work very well either, do they? No. And partly because when you're lying down, the headache's not there and it's yeah. really only there when you're standing up. <clears throat> it's uh, a tricky thing. Um, Sphenopalatine ganglion blocks, some sort of... Gareth Ansell, who's one of our um, uh, previous uh, research fellows here, is famous for, for doing it on me and putting uh, yes, a picture on YouTube. Yeah. But in fact, we haven't had, a, uh, despite the fact we've got a little um, teaching video on YouTube, we don't use it that often. Mm. Uh, and it's really the the, way, the the role we find it is just basically if someone chooses to have conservative therapy, it's one of the things we sometimes offer them. Yeah, and in some patients it has helped. Um, yeah, and, and just, just for those that don't know much about sphenopalatine ganglion blocks, Roger, you probably know more about them than me. Can you just summarise why it Well, might I wouldn't say um, I know a lot. I have had one done you on, the spot. on me twice, <laughs> <laughs> even though I didn't have a headache. Um, so basically this is just a block that has been around for a while. Uh, it's been used for migraine management for, head for many years. Yeah. And, uh, and if you look on YouTube, there is, um, you know, you, it has been blocked in the past with quite an invasive sort of needles through the various parts of the face um, but the the technique that seems to have been adopted for um, headache management which is not an, a less invasive is just putting a cotton swab through the nasal passage up against the um, posterior and mucosa at the back of the nose and um, using a sort of concentrated local anaesthetic to diffuse through the mucosa and into the sphenopalatine ganglion and that, uh, that is where the sort of autonomic nervous yeah, system invades the head. Parasympathetic yeah, ganglion, yeah. isn't it? And, and that seems to, to, to your provide vasodilatation. Anal- yeah, provide your... analgesia for um, a whole host of different headache syndromes, and mm. it definitely seems to work, mm. at least temporarily, for people with a dual puncture headache as well. But it doesn't, isn't um, in my mind anyway, it's not going to stop the CSF leak, so it's not going to change the time course of that. Yeah. Um, but it just might be analgesic while they have a headache. Maybe it might help them get up and around for a few hours. Um, but to be honest, we haven't used it that much, so we can't really. Yeah, really and there, there isn't really much out there in the literature as yet. Yeah. I think I think you know if there was a, a bigger, better study, that would be beneficial. Yes, and we and so we did actually talk to our colleague Dr. Mike Pake, who has done a randomised trial on on uh, this syndrome, and he told me not to bother <laughs> uh, because uh, his study, which involved um, different um, volumes of blood for epidural blood patching, took him about a decade, mm-hmm. even though he had about. 12 or 15 hospitals you know, contributing and uh, he said it's just um, fee- the feasibility of doing studies in this patient group is so difficult that um, uh, it will be very difficult for us yeah. to undertake that and uh, so that's unfortunate. Yeah and I guess other other therapies which have been used to um, either before well to try and reduce the risk of the headache developing or to treat the headache um, we mentioned caffeine um, 5-HT Agonists, essentially no evidence. Um, uh, synthetic ACTH, something That's I right. studied many years ago, and yep. again, and no, um, no, no insufficient evidence to recommend its use. Uh, pregabalin, insufficient evidence to recommend its use. Hydrocortisone, dexamethasone, <laughs> all these things which are in the literature as case reports or case series, yeah. um, there is no strong evidence to use them. Let's talk about blood patches. Yeah. So, what's the history of them? What's the current What's the current way you frame it when you do, or, or when you're sort of talking to a patient with a good going headache? 
as to how effective it might be and, and uh, yeah, how do you... How well, do you I think how you, how you described it earlier, Roger, is sort of breaking down into conservative management to providing something a little bit more invasive. Um, and conservative management, as you say, is really just to wait for it to get away because most of these um, headaches do resolve over a few days, though some have lasted for a longer period of time. And one of the concerns about this is there may be an association with chronic headache, and that's something that's been yep. um, borne out in the literature in recent years. Um, and there's also a potential risk of um, the low intracranial pressure causing uh, tears of the meningeal bridging veins and causing a subdural hematoma. So, um, And there, there have been some, well, if you, if you were to look in the literature of subdural hematoma associated with epidurals and spinals, there are many, many, many cases, including deaths. So that's something we always have to be mindful and always uh, keeping an eye on the characteristics of the headache to make sure they haven't changed. Yeah, that's right. And so how would that usually manifest? Is this like a headache that suddenly is no longer postural and is much more severe? Is that what you... Yeah, so, so often, yeah. And, and when you look at these case series, um, there's often associated uh, neurological signs, dysarthria, um, nausea, yep. um, confusion, those sort of things. Um, yep. and, and the headache is different in character and that yep. postural nature has gone. So we should have a low threshold for um, imaging someone's central neuraxium. If, yeah, if, if, we're it, if, it is, if, yeah. if we're worried, and uh, yeah, absolutely. And yeah. I think you know, also if um, maybe you've done a blood patch um, and the headaches return, maybe it's not quite the same as it was earlier, or there's any other concerning features. Then yeah, um, well, certainly if you do a blood patch and it doesn't seem to work, that's an alarm bell in my mind anyway. Yeah. Okay, so what uh, do you want to just explain? What is a blood patch and how mm. how effective you think they are? And yeah. So, so I guess if if. Uh, so the blood patch is, well, I guess it's it's not quite the definitive treatment because it doesn't always work, but it is, you know, if we were to look at the evidence of all the different therapies that have been reported over the years, the blood patch is the one that has the best evidence yep. for its use. Uh, and it was a bit of serendipity to how the blood patch was first um, discovered, and it was first done by a guy called um, Gormley, a neurologist in the United States who... Um, there were a lot of headaches from lumbar punches um, and uh, he gave the first blood patch which was done before epidurals the epidural technique was around so by um, putting in a first of all he had, he'd, he'd noticed that if he had a bloody tap with his lumbar punches they seemed to have less headaches which yep. may or may not have been true um, and so one day he tried to um, put some blood into the epidural space, and by doing this, he, he did it with a spinal needle by going back into the intrathecal space, withdrawing the needle until the CSF stopped flowing. Presumed <laughs> we were in the epidural space, gave just two mils of blood, and the rest is history. Um, yeah, the headache went away. And, he's making uh, another hole in the dura. Exactly. And not putting yeah. much blood in. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, I believe he went on to have a blood patch of his own um, after some radiological procedure. Yep. So, so it kind of went from there. So, so the first blood patch, the volume that was put into the epidural space was just two mils. And I guess the aim of the blood patch is to seal the hole that's been made in the dura. Yep. Though the effect of the blood is also to, um, by putting into the epidural space, it also raises your um, intrathecal, uh, the pressure within your intracranial. Um, Pushes CSF back up. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to say. say. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Rather <laughs> like a, my bear hug. Like the bear hug, yeah, yeah. And I've also heard that a bit like, you know, some of the... Um, 
platelet rich injections that you get into tendons and things like that, mm. uh, that perhaps um, the blood is full of all these sort of um, cytokines that encourage fibroblast proliferation and maybe that helps as well. Yeah, the, the interesting thing is, um, so, so going back to 1960, so first epidural blood patch, two mils of blood, and then over the years we've started putting more and more and more in, sort of 10, 20, sometimes yep. up to 30 mils of blood. Um, hence our great colleague Mike um, yep. Paik, who, who looked into uh, the volume of blood. 15 versus um, 25, wasn't it? Or? Yes, yep. uh, well, 10 versus 15 versus, yeah, 25, 25 I think, yep. or 30, yep. 30 mils, I think. Um, uh, sorry, Mike. We should, <laughs> we should, should read your papers. Well, we, we should read some of your papers one day, um, uh, and and found. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, what, one of the problems is that when you inject a larger volume of blood, one of the common side effects is I'm sure you've experienced is back pain. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so a large proportion of the women, and this was an amazing, you know, multi-centered randomized controlled trial across many different countries. Uh, many of the women in the 30 mil group never actually got 30 mils because yeah. they weren't able to get 30 It was 30 too mils. uncomfortable for them. Yeah, obviously um, you stop when they get really uncomfortable. Yeah. But the yeah. feeling was that uh, 20 or 30 mils was better than 15 mils. So I'd suggest <coughs> that current uh, evidence points to aiming for 20 mils. Of, yep. of blood and uh, interestingly when you look at uh, when you image the back after a blood patch the, the, the blood actually crosses many different vertebral segments you know, yeah, yeah. so it spreads sort of around a lot up yeah. to eight segments so yeah, it's, um, it's, interesting, isn't it? it's, it's really interesting yeah. but it does seem to work though again just as the, uh, the blood volumes have increased over the years from 2 to 30 the success rates attributed to a nemphigial blood patch has fallen so um, going back to Gormley's years, we would quote a sort of 90% success rate. Now from uh, studies like Mike's, um, permanent success rate is probably only around about 50%. But I guess it's hard to know because um, Gormley probably was using spinal needles, not two needles, when That's he caused true. the dural puncture. And he might have had a, um, an older patient group as well. So the patients in his study might not have been young women who, are, who tend to have worse headaches than older patients. Um, yeah, and I think so also, really to yeah, in, and, and in the older studies as well, which showed higher success rates, patients weren't followed up. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah. And it's very common for blood patches to work, um, but a proportion subsequently fail and the headache recurs. recurs. So unless you're actually yeah. following your patients up, you don't really know what the true permanent success rate is. So, yeah. so looking so, at partial success rate is probably quite high permanent success rate is not what quite as good of, as we thought so it was. So patients often like, when you're talking to a patient, they often like you to give them a sort of ballpark figure. And I always say, these are my only ballpark figures. So what do you tell them? It's nice to be consistent. I find the problem is that they see a different anaesthetist on the pain round every day. Yeah, and, I think. And they get a different number every time and they'll get a bit confused as to whether we know what we're doing or not. And, and that's where having written information is very useful that we all actually read ourselves and, yeah, yeah. and actually provide you know the same, sort of same we, information. We patients in our institution? Of course I do, Roger. I don't know. <laughs> I've got no idea. Um, but <laughs> so I, we'll just, yeah, we'll so, just gloss over that then. <laughs> but I, I, I think you can say to them, look, this is, this is a therapy uh, that is associated with a, a very good chance of making your headache go away straight away. Yep. And it's also, as a therapy, there aren't actually that many therapies we can do once, and even if it just works 50% of the time, if you think about it, there's not many things we use in medicine that have that, yeah, that is success rate. Yeah. So um, I think, you know, even though we used to sort of quote 90, 80% permanent success rate, um, even 50, 60% is, is, good. is good. We should yeah. see that as good. And look, you know, we'll follow you up. Um, 
if it does recur, it may well not be as severe as yeah. it was. And I think that's probably a good, important point. I always say that even if it doesn't take away your headache, usually your headache's a lot better. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And with time, things tend to get better as well. Yeah. Um, obviously, there are complications, and I think that that's really important to um, to, to mention. I, in fact, I remember the first time I saw somebody, doing, uh, one of my consultant colleagues doing a blood patch, I walked into the operating theatre was a weekend on call I was a very junior anaesthetist and I arrived just at the point that he was injecting 20 mils of blood into the epidural space and I went up to him and said stop what are you doing (laughs) it just looks so wrong to me and every time I do it it doesn't feel right it doesn't it feels very clunky thing to do it just feels there's no sort of finesse about I guess we're just used to blindly injecting blood yeah that was the start of my anaesthetic career um (laughs) So yes, there are complications which are worth worth uh, briefly mentioning. Um, yep. Number one, we may cause the same complication that we're yep. using the blood patch to treat. Um, the short-term complications of backache and backache is really quite common. I don't know, from your yeah. experience, yep. Roger, so backache at the time and also backache afterwards. And, and there's um, and, and I think that's a really important thing to tell patients that you are likely to have a sore, stiff back. Yep. Um, which hopefully will improve. And then we're um, really down to the very rare complications. But if you do look at the case reports of harm, it is quite scary because all kinds of things have been described, but they are very rare. Things like arachnoiditis, subdural hematomas. Yeah, some uh, of those due to the... Um the CSF leak itself or the blood patch exactly it is hard to pin pin down especially things like subdural hematoma you imagine that's the low pressure causing that yeah but we should you know we we need to go into this uh, in a a very sort of um, measured way and and just do it well and do it carefully and so we didn't really talk about that do we but usually so the way we usually approach it is the most senior person around does the blood patch Mm. it's not something for a junior person to have a crack at Uh, and we usually wait 48 hours don't we yeah, so there is, I'd, I'd say there's reasonable evidence of yeah. um, waiting, um, uh, partly because, I, I guess, because headaches often get away, get, get better on their own anyway, so just yep. waiting that 48 hours, they may get better, and yep. therefore you and want o- to and often the patient, the, um, blood patch. Often the patient's reluctant to have another uh, needle in their back in the first 48 hours. It only takes them a while before they realise they've got a severe headache and they want something to be done. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's also... Yeah. yeah, yeah, and the other thing, uh, local anaesthetic in the back um, uh, can s- uh, stop the clot from forming, yep. um, uh, and also CSF does things to your clot as well. Yeah, uh, but yeah, so forty-eight hours. I, I think that's quite good, um, good guidance. Uh, but obviously, if you're completely incapacitated at twenty-four hours, it's clearly a postural puncture headache, and you're really, really struggling you could consider doing it. But I think if you can eke it out till 48 hours, um, that's a reasonable thing to do. All right. I think we we should try and wind it up. So uh, what are your long-term consequences? You mentioned before there were some observational studies saying maybe there is an increased incidence of chronic headache in these patients. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's just a a reporting bias? You know, if you've had a really bad experience uh, with a bunch of headache, you're more likely to remember every tension headache you get over the next five years, or is it a real thing? Yeah, um, and, and then yeah, the, and the study that this um, has mostly come from was a telephone study in America of patients that yep. had had a dural puncture matched with women who had had an epidural but no dural puncture, and if you're phoned up to ask 
do you still have a headache? Having had a severe headache, you may be more, more likely to remember. More likely. Every small but it was, it was fairly, you know, it was really interesting. But it is concerning, I think. isn't it? It is concerning. It's, it's possibly a real thing. Yeah, and I think one of the other really important things to do is if, if you've had somebody who's had this complication and you've got them better or you've at least got them better temporarily and they're being sent home, uh, you really need to communicate that very clearly with the patient as to what to do should things recur or any strange things start happening. And also the GP, I think, should, yes. be, um, should be informed as well. And if, for example, the woman was to go on and develop a subdural hematoma and present to the GP with a headache, uh, the GP may well put this down to the dural puncture that she'd had you know it's, uh, yeah um, so close follow up's important isn't it absolutely and this then in the, the confidential inquiries into maternal deaths in the United Kingdom a few years ago there were two maternal deaths related to dural puncture one was exactly that somebody who had been sent home and um, uh, later developed a subdural hematoma and it wasn't really picked up um, yep. and partly through there was potentially a lack of communication um, with the primary care and uh, the other lady actually had a cavernous sinus thrombosis yeah. as well as a dural puncture and, and sadly died from the complications of that. So we need to, yeah, really um, clear communication That's to, right, yeah. to all and so very, providers after that. Very cautious approach, uh, uh, imaging or getting uh, other opinions. If yeah, you, I think if, if anything, it's not quite if you know, anything, right. If it's not quite right. Um, and then I think about imaging, it's just very binary, isn't it? You know, yep. you can just exclude hematoma thrombosis most most serious space things. occupying lesion yeah. Um, yeah. and so it excludes those serious things and then you can reassure the patient and um, yeah okay and the final thing I say is if you're coming back for a future delivery because uh, some of these women are mm. obviously going to have other children again in the future and if they need a cesarean or they want analgesia in labor I always say to them you've got to tell the midwife when you come into the labor ward this has happened before and we will try if you're at our institution anyway to get the most senior person to come and do your epidural. It's not the person who's come for upskilling or the junior registrar who's just started. Um, I'd think we should just an informal policy. To, um, yeah, I'd try agree and with that, them. Roger. And, and obviously this doesn't guarantee they can't get a, another dual no. puncture, but it is less likely in, uh, uh, if you get a more experienced person um, who's further along in their learning curve. Yeah. All right. I think we'll call Completely it quits. agree. Yeah. It's an interesting Thanks topic, again, isn't Matt. it? Um, Thanks again. Yeah, pleasure. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you like the show, please go to the Apple Podcast menu and rate us and give us a review. Um, and also feel free to go to the website, www.obsandgynecritcare.com. Uh, Org, where there will be links to relevant articles and show notes. Thanks for listening.